worship and praise you tonight. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. I am appointed and I am anointed. Well, give a shout of praise to God. God bless you. You can be seated. Praise God. What a joy it is to be here in this conference and to have an opportunity to impart into your lives. This is what the Lord said that I would be doing for the rest of my life. And uh, he told me my crusade days are over and I am to spend my life now imparting into the lives of ministers. I'm doing something very special now. I'm in the process of doing it. The Lord gave me the scripture in John 14, 12, the works that I do, you shall do also. And greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. We have developed a new tablet in China, and we are taking all of the resources of the Oral Roberts Ministries, and we're putting them on chips, and they're going into the tablets, and we are distributing them into the hands of underdeveloped nations' pastors who have virtually no internet. They're in the bush, they're in the jungle, they're in the desert, they have no access to internet, and they've had very little teaching. What they wouldn't give to be in a conference like this. And uh, God, through technology, is making a, a way for us to take our entire ministry to those pastors. We're not selling it to them, we're giving it as a seed. And the Lord will bless it to them, and he will bless it back to us. In Jesus' mighty name. I'm honored to be here. Brother Jerry, I love you and Carolyn very much. We appreciate you and your ministry, and thank you for, for inviting us. It's a pleasure and honor to be here, and I accept your charge of being a regular. I accept that. Now, Lindsay and I are honored to be here, and we are honored that two of our three daughters are here tonight. Jordan and Olivia, would you stand up, please? Let the people greet you. Jordan and Olivia. I'm very blessed that they are here tonight. My dad used to love to tell the story of the lion who was walking proudly through the jungle one day when he saw a chimpanzee. And he said to him, who is the king of the jungle? And the chimpanzee replied, oh, you are, mighty lion, you are. And the lion's chest got a little bit bigger, and he came across a zebra, and he shook him and said, who is the king of the jungle? And the zebra said, oh, you are, mighty lion, you are. And the lion's chest was a little bigger, and he saw an elephant. He took him by the trunk and shook him and said, who is the king of the jungle? And the elephant, not particularly appreciating this kind of treatment, took the lion in his trunk and shook him and threw him up against a tree. Dazed, the lion came to himself and looked up and said, well, you didn't have to get so mad just because you didn't know the answer. <laughs> and there are a lot of angry people today. There are a lot of angry Christians who are shaking their fist at God. Instead of opening their hand and sowing some of what they have unto God so that he can open them the windows of heaven. And many Christians have not understood the principles of sowing and reaping. If they understood, they would be running to plant seed unto God, knowing the greater the sacrifice, the greater the blessing. Now, the first message I brought was on healing. The second message this morning was on the Holy Spirit. And tonight, seed faith. Because those are the three things that the Lord laid on my heart for the rest of my life. He said, now Richard, you'll come at them a hundred different ways. But that's what I want you to teach. Teach on healing. Everybody say healing. healing. Teach on the Holy Spirit. Everybody say the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Teach on seed faith. Everybody say seed, seed faith. Seed. I was at my father's home in California, and we were watching television one night, Christian television, 
and a preacher came on, and my dad and I were talking, weren't paying that much attention, when all of a sudden my dad heard his name, and this preacher began to preach against my dad and preach against his message and against his ministry. And my father stopped and said, well, listen to that. He's, he's, preaching, against, he's preaching against me. And we just stopped for a moment, and we just kind of watched and listened to what the man was saying against him. And at the close, he said, and now we will receive our seed faith offering." My dad fell off the couch into the floor and laughed hysterically. He said, well, he doesn't like me, but he got the message. He got the message. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis. Genesis. What chapter shall we go to? Genesis. Where is that scripture? Genesis, as long as the earth remains, there'll be seed time and harvest. Genesis 8, I knew it, I knew it all along. <laughs> Genesis 8, 22. Genesis 8, 22. As long as the earth remains. Well, is the earth remaining? Yes. Are we still here? Yes. There will be seed time and harvest. My dad was conducting a crusade in Seattle, and we drove down to the great Columbia River, one of the great rivers in the western part of our nation. And the fields along the river banks were whitened to harvest. Thought about that as you laid hands on people tonight. And my dad said, look at that, look at those fields, and look at those farmers. Look at the excitement. They know it's harvest time. I didn't fully understand, I was just a boy. And my mother later said, we're going to plant a garden in our backyard. I'm going to plant tomatoes and onions and other things. And she gave me seed. We dug little trenches and holes and we had plants. And she saw that I didn't know what I was doing. She reached into her apron and she pulled out a package of tomato seeds. And on the package it had a picture of red, juicy tomatoes. She handed it to me, and I said, Mother, is that what it's going to look like? She said, yes, son, not today, not tomorrow, not next week, but the day will come when we will be out here, and we'll be gathering armloads of tomatoes, and for the first time in my life, I got a glimpse of the harvest, and the day came when she said, it's time. And we went out there with bushel baskets and we began to gather in the harvest. There's nothing on the face of the earth that can stop your seed unless you pour gasoline on it with your doubts. Let me say that again. There's nothing that can stop your seed unless you pour gasoline on it with your doubt. My grandfather, Reverend E.M. Roberts, was a pastor and a farmer. And uh, he loved to tell stories. He was a big man like my dad. And he had big hands and he had a big voice. He could, he could, uh, you could hear his voice from a long distance. And he loved to tell stories. And he said one day, as they were pastoring, there was a man who was a chicken rancher in his church there in southeast Oklahoma. And he drove his pickup into my grandfather's yard of the parsonage and got out and came to the door and knocked. And when my grandfather and grandmother opened the door, the chicken rancher had a live chicken in his hands. And he said, I've come to give my offering." This is my offering, a live chicken. And he gave the chicken to my grandfather. My grandfather received it, and the chicken rancher left. An hour or two later, there was another knock on the door, and the chicken rancher was there with another chicken. And my grandfather said to him, what's this? He said, well, I brought you another chicken. And my grandfather said, why? He said, well, did you notice 
that the chicken I brought you had only one eye. And my grandfather said, yes, it was a little unusual. We saw that it had only one eye, but we had planned to kill the chicken and eat it. And he said, well, as I drove back home, God convicted my heart and said, I should not give the Lord a chicken with one eye. I should give him a chicken with two eyes. And I've come to give you this chicken in exchange for the chicken with one eye. And so they exchanged chickens. I remember my grandfather telling me that story. And it made me ask the question, how many Christians today are giving God their one-eyed chickens? (laughs) You know, something that you won't miss. I won't miss this, so I'll just give it to God. And God doesn't want something that we won't miss. He wants something that represents us. He didn't give something he wouldn't miss. He gave his son. He gave his best. And the first murder in the world was over something that wasn't important to a man. Abel gave his offering, his first fruit offering. He gave God his best and he gave his best first. Cain, however, gave his offering, well, the King James Bible says, in the course of time. Or in other words, he gave when he got around to it. Or we might say he gave something that meant nothing to him. And if you give God something that means nothing to you, believe me, it will mean nothing to God. And God rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's. And Cain got so angry that he committed the first murder in the world. And that's how much Satan hates it when people sow unto the Lord. Because when you sow, you have a Bible right to expect God not only to use it for his glory, but then to multiply it back to you, as Jesus himself said in Luke 6, 38, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give unto your bosom. For with what measure you give, it will be given to you again. My grandfather told me the story that back in the early 1930s, during Depression days, they were living in a little three or four room shotgun style house outside of Ada, Oklahoma in the southeast portion of our state. And a hailstorm came in the summer. And the hail sometimes in southern Oklahoma can be as big as baseballs, sometimes even bigger than that. And the hailstorm destroyed my grandfather's crop. And he came out on the porch, he said, as he told me, and surveyed the damage. And he began to weep because he knew what that meant. He knew He knew that it was too late to replant and the crop was lost. He knew there would be no harvest. When my grandmother, Claudius Priscilla, came out on the porch. Now, get a picture of her. She was five feet tall and about five feet wide. (laughs) And she could pick up a grown man under her arm. I have seen her do it carry him. She was a fiery Pentecostal. And my grandfather was a Methodist pastor. They were Methocostals. She came out of the porch and she said, Ellis? Yes? Go inside the house and get that $100 bill you've been hiding from me. Hitch up the wagon, take, El- take uh, Vaden and Oral, Go into town, go to Jeter's feed store, and buy seed. We're going to replant. My grandfather knew that it was too late in the season to replant. The frost would come, followed by the freeze. But he also knew enough not to argue with his Pentecostal wife. (laughs) 
And so I went inside, and he got the $100 bill. It was Depression days, and my grandfather would not ever let anyone say Reverend E.M. Roberts was broke. And so he always had a $100 bill hidden. <clears throat> he got the $100 bill. My dad and my Uncle Vaden hooked up the wagon, and the three of them went to town. And when they pulled up in front of uh, Jeter's feed store, Mr. Jeter was standing there with his two sons. And he asked the question, Reverend Roberts, how did your farm fare in the storm? And my grandfather replied, Mr. Jeter, it's all gone. The crop is gone. And he said, I, I know I'm so sorry. It's the story of our whole area. Everybody's crop is lost. There's going to be no harvest this year. And my grandfather reached into his pocket and pulled out a $100 bill and held it up. I said, Mr. Jeter, I have $100. Oral and Vaden and I have come to buy seed. We're going to replant. And Mr. Jeter just started to laugh. And his sons started to laugh. And the others who were standing around the front started to laugh. But suddenly, something came over Mr. Jeter, as my grandfather told me the story. He said, boys, drive Brother Robert's wagon around to the back of the store, to those big feed doors, and load their wagon with seed and take the $100. The Roberts are going to replant. And the next morning, they began replanting seed. And the people in the area by now had heard the story, and they lined the fence posts, fence posts of my grandfather's farm to watch and to laugh and to mock because they also knew it was too late in the season to replant. But the Roberts replanted. Funny thing happened that year in southern Oklahoma. The frost was unusually late. And the freeze didn't come until after Thanksgiving. And only one farm in the area got a harvest. And it was the Roberts farm. And my grandfather and my father told me that it was the seed of equivalent benefit. Everybody say the seed, the seed. of equivalent benefit. They sowed in their time of need. They sowed out of their loss. And out of their loss came a mighty harvest. And that's what God did. He sowed a seed of equivalent benefit. He had lost mankind. And so he sowed a seed of equivalent benefit by sowing his son. So that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For he did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The seed of equivalent benefit. You ought to write that down. The seed of equivalent benefit. Every one of you has gone through things in your life. You know, you've either had a problem or you are a problem. <laughs> Or you live with one. <laughs> the seed of equivalent benefit. How did it start? How did it all start? It started in Genesis. Genesis 8, 26. As long as the earth remains, there shall be seed time and harvest time. And God looked for a man who would obey him. And he found him living in Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern-day Iran. Much of the Bible, as you know, is set in what we know today as Iran. It was called Persia and other names in those days. In fact, that area of the world is mentioned only second to Israel in the Bible. Much of the Bible took place in what we know as Iran. And Abram, as he was called, his name was changed to Abraham. For the sake of this message, I'll just call him Abraham. Abraham and his wife, Sarai, who was changed to Sarah, heard the voice of the Lord. Get up from your kindred. Get up from the pagan worship that you're involved in with your kinfolks and go to a place that I will show you when you get there. Now, to get up and start on a trip not having any idea where you're going 
must have taken a lot of faith. He said, I'll show you where you're going when you get there. And they got out on the highway and they began to travel until they came to the place that we know today as Israel. And God said, I'm going to establish you here. And Abraham began uh, to prosper. And he had a number of people that worked with him. And he was doing very well until they had a family squabble. Is there anyone here who has ever had a family squabble? Don't all of you raise your hand at the same time. (laughs) Things happen, don't they? And they had a family squabble. And Lot and his part of the family got upset. And Abraham said, look, let's not not, uh, come into a big fight. You pick the land that you want and you choose and I'll take what's ever left. And Lot chose the well-watered plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, that didn't turn out too well, did it? And Abraham took the hard scrabble land and God continued to prosper him. And the day came when four marauding armies came in and kidnapped Lot and his people. And Abraham sought the Lord and went to rescue them. And he rescued them and brought them back to Sodom. And the Bible says the priest of Salem, a man by the name of Melchizedek, came to Abraham with bread and with wine which was a type of holy communion that we celebrate today, and said to him, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, and the one who delivers you from all of your enemies. And for the first time, Abraham got an understanding of who God really is, that he is Most High, he is the possessor of heaven and earth, And he's the one who delivers us from all of our enemies. And when when Abraham knew that and who God was, for the first time he knew who he was. And the Bible says that he opened his hand and he gave a tithe, a tenth, which means increase, of all that he had. Immediately Satan came in to steal it. The king of Sodom came in and said, "You, uh, you give me the people... And you take the goods. Satan will always come as a a cunning deceiver like Brother Keith said yesterday. He doesn't come in a red suit and pitchfork and and horns. He comes in as a deceiver. He came to the king of Sodom to make a deal. Satan will always try to make a deal with you. And Abraham said, no, I will not make a deal with you. Lest you say you made Abraham rich. And the moment he said it. Fear struck his heart. How do I know? Because if you go to the next chapter, in chapter 15, God had to say to him, Abraham, don't be afraid. I am your shield, and I am your exceeding great reward. And Abraham was already expecting a harvest because he said to God, I'm expecting something back from you. What do you mean, you say? What was he expecting? He said, how long are you going to let me go childless? He was 85 years old by this time. And he was believing for a child. So therefore, when we sow, we have a right to expect something from God. Now, many people put their faith and trust in others and expect others to bless them. Yes, God said he will cause men... But it's, it's, it's God causing men to give back to you. We sometimes put our, our, our faith in, in people and we make people sources. And people are not sources. People are instruments. And people will let you down. Uh, love people. Uh, pray for people. But don't make them the source of your life. Make God the source of your life. Say this. God is my source. Not people. You see, people are instruments. But they make lousy sources because people will let you down. And then the first thing you know, you're mad at God. Because you didn't take the time to look to God as your source and let him choose the instrument that he wanted to use. So he said, I am your shield and I'm your exceeding great reward. And he said, now, God, what are you going to do for me seeing that I go childless? 
And God said, go out here and count the number of stars if you can. That'll be like the numbers of those that will come through you. And God fulfilled the promise. And you remember the story. Isaac, which means laughter. Isaac was born. Abraham was the first man to believe God. And the scripture says in Genesis 15 that it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And righteousness is simply right believing. It's not self-righteousness. It's just simply right believing. David got a glimpse of it. Because God said Abraham would command his children. And so he passed it to Jacob and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and on down the line. David got a glimpse of it. David understood that he had to do something for God that was his best. And David also planted a seed of equivalent benefit when David got into trouble. Seemed like David was always in trouble. And yet God called him a man after his own heart. And you remember the story when David disobeyed God and numbered the people. And God became very angry, and he sent a death angel. And before you know it, 70,000 men died. And David realized he had the blood of 70,000 men on his hands. He had caused their death because of his disobedience. And David looked around for a way to plant a seed of equivalent benefit, and he saw a man over here a threshing wheat, uh, 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 wheat and, uh, uh, and said, I'll, I'll go over to him. And I'll buy the threshing floor. And I'll buy the instruments. And I'll buy the animals. And I'll sacrifice or I'll sow unto the Lord. And this man said, no, your majesty, I'll, I'll give it to you. You see, Satan always comes in with a, with a deal. I'll give it to you. David said, no, 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 no. I would not give God that which cost me nothing. It costs God his son to go to the cross. When we give, it costs us something. We don't give indiscriminately. We don't give because uh, we won't miss it. He said, I would not give God that which cost me nothing. I will, I will pay retail. I'll buy the threshing floor. I'll buy the instruments. I'll buy, I'll buy the animals for the sacrifice, which was a seed in those days. And God stayed the hand of the death angel, and Israel was saved. A seed of equivalent benefit. Elijah said, it's not going to rain till I say so. And pretty soon he was running for his life. And the ravens came and fed him. And he drank from the brook. But the day came when the ravens stopped coming and the brook dried up. And God said, I'm going to send you to the most unlikely person. I'm going to send you to a widow. And she will sustain you. And when he got to Zarephath, she was gathering sticks with her son to make a fire. She said, I'm going to make one last supper. My son and I are going to eat it and we're going to die. Elijah had prophesied it would not rain until he said so because of the disobedience of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and the people. They had gone away from God. And Elijah said, it's fine. You go ahead and make the last supper, but give the first portion unto me. And if you will, thus saith the Lord, your meal barrel shall not diminish and your crucible oil shall not fail. And she did as the prophet instructed. She planted her very last that she had. But the next time they were hungry, there was enough meal and there was enough oil. And the next time they were hungry, there was enough meal and there was enough oil. And the next time they were hungry, there was enough. There was enough. And it is estimated that she cooked some 1,000 meals out of an empty meal barrel and crucible oil because she sowed out of her need. She gave unto God. And when she gave it unto God, God used it for his glory to sustain the prophet in Israel. But it didn't stop there. He multiplied it back to her good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. You can find this thread throughout the entire Old Testament. Now, let's come to the New Testament. Imagine Peter sitting on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He fished all night. Now washing and mending his nets when a man that he probably had heard of came walking up with a crowd. It was Jesus. 
And he said to Peter, lend me your boat. Can you imagine the, con- the conversation that must have happened? My dad taught me that the Bible is a synopsis. It-, it doesn't give you all the details, but in your imagination, you can imagine there must have been something that happened. Lend me your boat. Well, what do you want my boat for? Well, I, I need it to preach from. Well, it's my boat. It's my best boat. I know. Well, lend me your boat. Okay. And Jesus got in it, and he said, now push me out a little bit from the shore. And Peter did. And Jesus preached and taught the people. And no doubt did many miracles, because wherever he went, there were miracles. And after he finished, he came back over to Peter and said, now launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Well, now there are several problems here. First of all, in those days, the fishermen did not go out into the deep water because their boats were not constructed strong enough to withstand the winds because the Sea of Galilee is 200 feet below sea level and is subject to violent storms almost without notice. And if their little boats were out in the deep waters, they would capsize and they all could drown. And so they fished along the shallow waters where the small fish were. And Jesus said, launch out into the deep waters and let down your nets for a catch. Peter said, look, we've fished all night. We've kept all the rules of fishing. We've fished in the dark of the moon at night because if we fish during the day, the water's too clear, the fish can see it, the fish swim the other way, so we fish at night. And we kept all the rules. We fished all night long. We took nothing. And now you're telling me launch out into the deep and let down my nets? I can imagine what Peter must have been thinking. Nevertheless, he said, at your word, I will do it. He said, I will let down the net. Jesus has said, let down your nets. Peter said, I will let down the net. You can read it in the Bible. And Jesus got in the boat and they went out into the deep water. And because Jesus was with him and because of the seed that he had sown in loaning him his boat, suddenly something supernatural happened. Peter felt a tug on his shoulders as he threw the net over. And fish struck the net. And the first thing that happened was the net broke. I wonder if Peter had wished he had taken his nets. Maybe he was humoring Jesus and only taking his worst net. Maybe he was just taking the net that wasn't yet washed. Maybe he was just humoring Jesus to get him off his back. I just know he only seemed to have one net and it broke. I can imagine what Peter must have been thinking. Why didn't I fully obey? Look at the fish out here. They're swimming through the holes in my net. There goes a $5 fish. There goes a $10 fish. There goes a $100 fish. It must have meant something to Peter because the first thing he did was fall on his knees. He said, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. I, I've missed it. I can see Jesus reaching out, putting his hand on his shoulder, saying, Peter, get up. I'll make you a fisher of men. I'll make something out of your life. Peter planted a seed, but more than that, he learned how to give God his best. In fact, he came to a place where his faith in Jesus' word was so strong that he didn't wince when Jesus said, go down to the sea and cast in a hook. And the first fish you catch will have money in its mouth. And you can pay the taxes to the Roman government. It didn't seem to bother him any longer because Peter had fully accepted the message. Now turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And let me bring this home tonight. This is one of the greatest passages in all the Word of God. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now Philippians 4.18. What does that say? What? 
What does it say? No, make, make it 19, I'm sorry. What does 19 say? My God shall supply all my need according to what? His riches in glory. By who? All right, so you have at the top of the scripture, you have I can do all things through Christ. At the bottom of the scripture, you have my God shall supply all my need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And friends, you can quote those scriptures until the cows come home. But if you don't do what's in the middle, you're wasting your breath. Paul said, your, your care, your love for me has flourished again. Now, he wasn't criticizing them. Paul had an itinerant traveling ministry, and they didn't often know where he was. They didn't have communication systems in those days. There was no texting, no email. There's no way they could know where Paul was part of the time. They didn't know if he was... Uh, in, in, in Jerusalem or if he was in uh, Greece or if he was in jail or where he was. They didn't, they didn't know. But they found him and he said, I praise God that your care for me has flourished again. For I have received that which, which was sent by you, by Epaphroditus. He said, not that I desire a gift. And this is what we ministers have to get across into the lives of people that we are not seeking something for ourselves. We're not trying to get something from them. We're trying to get something to them. Paul said, not that I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. He's saying, I want you to be blessed And that's why I'm giving you this teaching. He said, wherever I have gone, I have, apparently, he taught on this principle wherever he went, but only the church at Philippi did something about it. He said, for even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again, and the Greek inference is, you sent again and again and again and again. You sent over and over and over unto my necessity. Not that I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. He said, but I have all. And it's amazing. Paul said it while he was in jail. He wrote this letter to them while he was in a Roman jail cell. I have all and I abound, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell. Well, isn't money, didn't he also call money filthy lucre? Well, how could their money have a sweet smell when it's filthy lucre? It's because money has no gender. Money is neither good nor bad. Money follows the person who's using it. If you do good with it, it's good money. If you do bad with it, it's bad money. That's why he can say on one hand, it smells sweet. And on the other hand, it's filthy lucre. He wasn't contradicting himself. He was talking about the ways in which some people use money. He said, your gift has an odor of a sweet smell. When you sow unto the Lord, it has a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. An odor of a sweet smell. A sacrifice acceptable, he said. Remember, God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's. And yet Paul is saying their sacrifice or their seed is acceptable to God. How many of you want your seed to be accepted? You want to be received by God. Well, in order for it to be received, it has to represent you. My father said, give God your best, not your worst. Don't reach down off the bottom and give to him. Give off the top. Give him your best and then ask him for his best. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the blessing. Not only was it sweet smelling, but it was a sacrifice acceptable. Then he said, your gift is well-pleasing to God. And that takes me back to Hebrews 13, 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Therefore, if it's well-pleasing, their faith had to be attached to their giving. When they sowed, their faith was attached to it. And that's where the term seed faith came from. That's the revelation that God gave my father, that faith 
was attached to the seed. And when faith is attached to the seed, God is obligated to watch over his word and perform it. For he said, when you bring the tithe and offering in, I will open you the windows of heaven. I will pour you out a blessing so much so that there's not room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer, the devil, for your sake. I once said to my dad, what does the word rebuke mean in this context? He says, in the original language, it means stop it. That's enough. I thought about that. I will rebuke the devil for your sake. I will say to the devil, stop it. That's enough. I thought about Peter and the disciples in the boat and Jesus asleep. And when they awakened him saying, Master, don't you care we're about to drown? Jesus awakened and walked to the bow of the ship and stretched out his hands. And the Bible says he rebuked the winds and waves. Therefore, he literally said to the winds and waves, stop it, that's enough. And there was a great calm. And when he went to Peter's home and found Peter's mother-in-law ill with a fever, he went into the room and said, I rebuke the fever, stop it, that's enough. And the fever left her. And she got up, went to babes and got fried chicken for him. Everybody say, stop it. That's enough. That's what the word rebuke means. I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. I will open you the windows of heaven. Why would you have to open windows? Because they're shut. We're not talking rocket science here. It's not a trick question. Why would you have to open windows? Because they're shut. Only twice in the Bible does God mention windows of heaven. Once in Noah's day, when he opened the windows of heaven and poured out a flood for 40 days and 40 nights, and he destroyed every living thing on the world with the exception of one man, his wife, and their family, and two of all the animals that were living on the earth at that time. And he started over again. The only other time he mentions the windows of heaven is in Malachi 3. He said, I'll open you the windows of heaven and pour out not a flood, but a blessing. I'll pour out upon you so much so you'll not have enough room to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer. I will say to the devil, you stop it. That's enough. That's my child. You can't have them. And that's why I say I belong to God. I believe in God. He's my source. And devil, you can't have me. You can't have my family. You can't have my wife. You can't have my children. You can't have my my health. You can't have my body. You can't have my finances. You can't have my relationships. You can't have my emotions. You can't have me because I belong to God. So devil, I rebuke you. Stop it. That's enough. And the greatest thing that I have learned since giving my heart to the Lord at 19 and being baptized in the Holy Spirit That night, which I shared with you this morning, the greatest thing I've learned is how to make my life a seed and to give my best to God, my love, my time, my money, my prayers, my smiles, a pat on the back, whatever I do, that's a seed. And then I look to God. Abraham looked to God. What a seed he sowed when he went and rescued Lot and the others and brought them back to town. What a seed he sowed when he wouldn't take anything from the king of Sodom, not even a shoelace. But he turned to God expecting and said, what are you going to do now, God, seeing that I go childless? He was expecting from God. Not from people, but from God. And when you sow your seed, And then you set your faith, knowing that harvest time is coming. You get yourself in a position to receive from the Lord. Now, you can plant the seed. God won't sow it. But 
you can't set the time of harvest. It's in his time. And oftentimes we want the seed harvested before God's time. But he doesn't work that way. As I told you this morning, I've told him what to do, when to do it, and who to do it to. And he's never done it my way once. He does it his way. He won't plant the seed, but we can't bring the harvest. It's a divine reciprocity. It's God and man working together. We sow, and he brings the increase. And he brings it in his timing. My father will go down in history for being the man who paid the price to present the seed faith message to the world. And I remember in 1969 when he was writing the book that's in the hands of some four million people around the world, The Miracle of Seed Faith. Many of you have read that book. I was there in his home. I typed the original manuscript on an old IBM Selectric typewriter. I typed the original manuscript. As he would write it, he was in the living room, I was in the kitchen. I was about 21 years old. He would write a chapter and hand it to me, and I would type it, double-spaced, and I would take it back to him, and he would rip it apart and rewrite it and send it back to me, and I'd type that, and I would take it to him, and he would rip it apart and write it over, and he would send it back to me, and we did this for days and days and days until that book was completed. Before that book was published, I knew it inside and out. (laughs) And it became a part of my life. And it has saved and and changed my life. I will not be the same. Now, you can say, well, you sound like your dad. What a great compliment. (laughs) You know, some years ago... uh, I was invited uh, to play golf in the Bob Hope Desert Classic in Palm Springs, one of the most prestigious PGA Tour events in the world. I knew the chairman of that great tournament, and he called and said, would you like to substitute uh, for someone who can't play uh, on uh, this particular day? And I said, let me pray about it. Yes. (laughs) And so um, he said, well, come on out to Indian Wells, Uh, tomorrow morning, and uh, we'll get you fixed up. And so I went out. I I was so excited. I had no idea who I'd be playing with. And uh, I got out there, and uh, I went to sign in, and they said, you're playing with Arnold Palmer and with former President Ford and another Hollywood actor, and you're in that foursome, and Arnold Palmer is your professional. There will be... Uh, three amateurs and one professional in each group. And your pro is Arnold Palmer. Well, (laughs) Uh, so I I was shaking. (laughs) I went to the practice tee to hit some balls before we started, and the tee time came, and there was former President Ford, and there was this actor, and there was Arnold Palmer, and there was about 2,000 people standing on the around the first tee, and I mean, it was unbelievable. And uh, so they introduced Arnold Palmer because the, the pros were playing from the championship tees, all the longest tees, and the amateurs were playing from a forward of that. And so they introduced Arnold Palmer, and the crowd just went wild. He was, he was at the end of his, uh, of his real playing days, competitive days. He was a little over 50 at the time. And, uh, but they just cheered and cheered, and he hit it right down the middle. The crowd just loved it. They cheered. Next, they introduced President Ford, and he nearly killed somebody when he hit it. <laughs> the ball went careening off to the left, and people were dodging him. And they, clap, they clapped for him, and he thanked them. And, and then this actor, I, I didn't have never heard of him, and he hit, and he hit, a, and they politely clapped. And then the announcer announced me, and he said, and now, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, Oral Roberts. (laughs) 
And the crowd started to laugh. And the announcer realized that he had made a mistake. And I turned around to the announcer and said, it's all right. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. (laughs) And I stepped up and hit it right down the middle of the fairway, and we went walking off into the sunset. (laughs) Give God your best. And then look to him as the source of your total supply, believing that he not only will use it for his glory, but he will multiply it back to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Let's stand together. Father, I thank you and I praise you. I thank you for an opportunity to share this message tonight. Thank you, Lord, that you poured it into my spirit from an early age. And it took, the inoculation of the word of God took in me. And the principles of the Bible remain in me today. Thank you for an opportunity to minister in this conference on healing. For wherever Jesus went, he healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. He caused the cripples to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. Those who are emotionally unstable to be healed and delivered in every area of their lives. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that we have a communication system with you and that we can pray in tongues at will and we can, as Paul said, interpret back to our minds to get understanding and ideas and insights and concepts and new and innovative ways of doing things. And thank you, Lord, for for an ability to plant our best seed unto God, our love, our time, our money, our prayers, our smiles, a pat on the back, a good word, that everything we do is a seed and that God will use it for his glory. And then he will multiply it back to us and meet us at the point of our need so that we can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and my God shall supply all my need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Let this settle in our hearts and let us deliver this to the people that they may be blessed. And then, Lord, bless it back to us that we might not only be blessed, but that we might be a blessing because of it. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' mighty name. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Give a shout of praise unto the Lord. Come on, shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph.